giving you a heads up. There's some foul language in this episode. All right, let's do it. In March of 1965, three clergymen were attacked by a group of white men with clubs outside a restaurant in Selma, Alabama. I understand one was uh, so brutally beaten that he had to be rushed to the hospital in Birmingham. That man who had to be rushed to the hospital, that was the Reverend James Reeb, who came from Boston to join Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s fight for voting rights in Selma. On Tuesday, March 9, the three clergymen entered Walker's Cafe for dinner, and as they left, were set upon by several white men. One of the ministers, the Reverend James Reeb of Boston, died. So Reeb's death drew national outrage. He was a husband, a father, a minister, and he was white. Even President Lyndon Johnson talked about the incident just days later in his speech introducing the Voting Rights Act. Long-suffering men and women peacefully protested the denial of their rights as Americans. Many were brutally assaulted. One good man, a man of God, was killed. This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. Even though the whole nation was talking about Reverend James Reeb's murder, nobody was ever held accountable. Fifty years later, two journalists, both Alabamians, set out to find out why. And Gene, you spoke with Andrew Beck Grace and Chip Brantley about their podcast, White Lies, where they say they, white Southerners of a younger generation, set out to call out the lies that kept this murder from being solved. Yep. And of course, I started out by asking them why they chose to investigate a story that centered a white victim of white supremacist violence. Here's Andy. Whenever you're choosing to take a story, there are lots of different reasons that you choose to take it. Some is access. In this case, we had this unredacted FBI file of an unsolved murder. So that's definitely exciting, right? Mm-hmm. But then there is just this, what is this the story that needs to be told, you know? But I'll be honest with you, if this was a black man who had been killed and we had an unredacted FBI file of the murder, I'm not sure that we would have felt that we needed to tell that story. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the value of that story. It's just about who should tell that story. But because it's a white man, he's killed by white people in a white community that covered it up. And the, the victim's family is also white, you know, living out in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. So that decision wasn't about his whiteness as a value judgment. It was instead about the access that, the, that, that our whiteness would allow us to have to tell this story. Um, white people doing the suffering of black people is a very complicated and, and problematic thing for me personally. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's my role to luxuriate in the horrors of of black death, basically, which Mm. is what a lot of white storytelling about black issues does. Mm. This story absolved us from that responsibility, even though it's all predicated upon black suffering and and black lives and black murders and all all the things that happened in our our part of the country. that's the, the inciting incident for why Reeb's there. But this particular story, it drills down on whiteness in a way that we felt like we had access to, and in some ways a responsibility to try to tell this story in a different way. This story we hope operates outside of the way a lot of these civil rights cold case stories operate, which is there's a, there's a humble victim who, who deserved to you know just live their life 
oftentimes that, that victim is black and these are white storytellers. And there's a bad guy who did the, the terrible thing of murdering that person. And we're going to get the bad guy. And once we get the bad guy, the story's over, mm-hmm. right? We just didn't want, that's not the story. That's not the problem here. The problem is not these bad racist guys. The problem is an entire system which creates, supports, and then covers up for, this, for these acts. And so we felt like our whiteness and, and Reeb's whiteness was a way to navigate that without having any of those trappings of the ways in which these stories often operate. In order to do this story, to sort of crack this case, uh, you both had to talk to a lot of white Alabamians who were either directly involved or complicit in the murder of Jim Reeb. How did you feel about having to build tr- rapport and trust with people who you know had both like disgusting views about black people, but also had probably been involved in some very heinous crimes. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a challenge, I think, to try to figure out how to treat people with the humanity that I think everyone, regardless of the worst thing they've ever done, deserves, mm-hmm. and still maintain uh, an, an, a, a disposition of friendliness, but also... Uh, a wariness about the world that they're portraying to us. And so I think the difficulty came really in responses because I don't feel personally that it's our role. It's not advantageous for the story for us to sit there and correct people moment by moment as they say terrible things to us. I mean, we were not detectives. We're not law enforcement. We're journalists. But we thought the highest, best use of our abilities was to get this story from the perspective of the people who lived it and to get it in their voices, not in our mediated voices, not not because they're telling us a version that's going to be seen as acceptable to us, but because they're telling the true version of what they really saw. And so it was a constant push and pull, but I, I'm, I'm, I must confess that it wasn't hard for us because it wasn't... I think we really fundamentally separated our own emotions and our own feelings of what was right and and not right about what these people were saying from the higher calling we felt to get the story right. But we would get in the car afterwards and be like, what the hell was that? Um, Because you needed that release. There's also like a, it seems like there's a presumption on the part of the people you're talking to, like that because you're white as well, that you are sort of in agreement. There's a sort of shared complicity. Like, okay, like I can say this to you. Totally. And you, like, uh, we know this is just like us talking, even though you have a microphone in their face. Yeah. Um, that they can trust that, you know, that this is all being said and you're on the same side. Um, you know, the, the sort of cartoonishly racist things people would say were almost easier to sort of take than the wink, wink kind of the look of, of, of complicity that we would get from people, you know, kind of like, well, you know, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of hint, hint uh, about something we were talking about. That was almost harder because it is, it, it's, it reveals right away that that person thinks that you are uh, fully on board with what they're saying. Man, the other day, so we go, we go, uh, we go to talk to this guy, completely separate story. Mm-hmm. He worked for the immigration service uh, in the 1980s and 90s. And he was at this prison that got taken over. Um, this is not a story about race necessarily, right? But we're talking to this guy for a long time about his experience as a hostage. And the incident began with an African-American guy uh, having his keys stolen by some of these inmates, which I don't even think we knew about. And we certainly didn't do anything to, to kind of encourage him to talk about that particular part of the episode. So he starts talking in veiled racist ways about the identity of this person. I can't remember what he said. He said something like, uh, he was bebopping along. Yeah, bebopping along. You know? <laughs> and just this kind yeah. of like nod, nod, wink, wink, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then so I think I think it was Chip who asked a follow-up, like, be more specific. Who t- Describe this person that you're saying to us. And he asked us, the only time in the whole interview, he asked us to turn the recorder off. Wow. And he said, it was just a dumb N-word. Mm-hmm. 
And it's just like, I mean, we both were like, what the fuck? I mean, mm. what is this? Why do we, do we have some sign on us that says, please talk <laughs> racist to us? Like it, the story is not even about that, you know? Mm. But again, we're not, uh, that man's judgment, in this case, off the record, but that man's oh, heinous word certainly shaped our opinion of of his of his reliability as a narrator but it also said something to us about like what is what is this whiteness that we have mm-hmm. that and the southernness that we have um at the same time with the, the fact that the man felt comfortable enough to say that to us means that he told us a whole lot of other stuff mm-hmm. on the record right mm-hmm. time for a short break when we come back i was a bad bad boy stay with us Support for NPR and the following message come from Rothy's. Rothy's are the stylish, comfortable, and sustainable flats seamlessly crafted from repurposed plastic bottles. Available in a range of colors, patterns, and styles like flats, loafers, and sneakers. Fully machine washable and no break-in period. Discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Rothy's always offers free shipping and free returns and exchanges. Go to rothys.com slash switch to find out more. Support for NPR and the following message come from Universal Pictures' Queen and Slim. What if you met your soulmate on the worst day of your life? Universal Pictures and Make Ready present Queen and Slim from director Melina Matsukas and writer Lena Waithe. Joining a legacy of films such as Set It Off and Thelma and Louise, Queen and Slim is a powerful, consciousness-raising love story that confronts the staggering human toll of racism and the life-shattering price of violence. See Queen and Slim only in theaters November 27th. Believe it or not, the 2010s are almost behind us. So before the decade disappears, NPR Music is hitting the pause button to look back at its defining trends, themes, and moments. From Beyonce to Bandcamp. I'm Robin Hilton. Join us as we look back at the decade in music with new episodes twice a week. Listen on All Songs Considered from NPR. Gene. Shireen. Code Switch. Three men were arrested for the murder of James Reeb. They were eventually tried and acquitted. But there was a fourth man present at that brutal beating in Selma on March 9, 1965. A man named Bill Portwood. Andy and Chip are the only journalists who have interviewed Mr. Portwood about the incident. He has since died, but he was 87 when they recorded their interview with him. I would really like to remember. I mean, hell, that's like reading a good book. One of the big themes in White Lies is memory, right, of what we choose to remember, what we choose to misremember, sometimes deliberately, in the case of a very central figure in the series. Uh, there's actually the question of whether he can functionally remember his role in the Reeb killing. And I was wondering, as you're talking to people who have, in some cases, a vested interest in deliberately misremembering how you decided that something was true, right, and something was bullshit, and sometimes, you know, the truth adjacent to bullshit, right, or, like, there was a little bit of truth mired in a whole lot of bullshit. You know, the really interesting thing about this story and the, the people, all the people we talked to is there were only a few people who had any direct access to to what happened on the street that night to Jim Reeb. And so what helped us with those people is we had this roadmap. We had this FBI file that was this incredible detailed document with, with contemporaneous 
you know, interviews with people. Most of them lied to the FBI, but still there were some critical details that were in that document. And so with those people, you know, notably uh, this man, Bill Portwood, who was uh, who you referenced to whose memory had sort of failed him. He'd had a series of strokes and, and, uh, and, you know, was having trouble remembering, was having aphasic sort of episodes, was having good days and bad days. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talked about, Bill Portwood talked about the fact that in their mid seventies, early mid seventies, after all this, he had sort of willed himself to forget that part of his past. He had actually done all these things and decided he didn't want to be that way anymore. Mm. And so he, Describe this process of just willfully forgetting. And his wife, like she, he said that she knew that he had, a, like a checkered past. Mm-hmm. She almost took a certain pride. I mean, she at one point says, oh, "These were bad men. You know, they, these men did their thing." You know, that's what she says, and described him as a, a pretty mean guy back in those days. With almost like a, she almost delighted in it. You know, but they all looked at it as this distant past that was now closed off, that was not accessible to us. At one point, she said to us, "Like, I really wish you could have talked to Bill a few years ago." Um, the interesting thing about that, she wanted us, she invited us in to talk to him because she felt it would be good for his memory. Like maybe it'll keep him sharp, like a crossword puzzle might, you know. And so she was the one who kept inviting us in to talk to him about this thing that that we felt like this is the thing. As journalists, we felt a certain responsibility, like they are inviting us in to tell a story that could implicate him and and get him some punishment. And so we always tried to remind them about why we were there. Uh, but... But, uh, you know, the, the, the eventually, all this time we spent with Bill, we were never quite sure what his mental state was, and we would debate it, you know, because there were moments when he was so clear, mm-hmm. and when he did remember us, and then there were moments when he didn't, and he was just muddy, and we couldn't get anything out of him. Did um, you ever get a sense that, this is sort of a, a cynical question, but did you ever get a sense that he was maybe... Uh, like playing it up a little bit? Totally. I mean, we thought that. We thought that. But I- I'll just share an anecdote with you about that. The day uh, the day that we found out that Bill had died, uh, went by his house. Nobody had knocked on the door. Uh, nobody answered. And uh, went out to my car, called the home phone, the Portwood's home phone. And Ina, Bill's wife, answered. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm in Selma. I'd love to come by and talk to you and check in, see what's going on. And she said, well, I've got to tell you, Bill, Bill's dead. Bill died. And I'm like, oh, my God, what? I'm out, I'm out front. Why don't I come in? So she invited me in. When I went in, there were two uh, glasses of water on the kitchen table. And they were sort of sweaty, but they still had some ice cubes in them. So they were fresh. You know, they hadn't been sitting there for days. And my first thought was, oh, my God, he's not dead. Like, he's, in the, he's hiding in the back room somewhere, you know. And then, of course, eventually found out that that was her son had just been by for lunch. But that we were constantly mm-hmm. trying to gauge how honest they were about his state. And and to the end, we're never quite sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will say, too, about Portwood in particular, that, you know, the, the story operates, well, we wanted it to operate, and we want all the stories I think we tell to operate on, on multiple levels, right? So there's this murder investigation, and he's a potential fourth assailant, and we're trying to get to the bottom of that. But once we discovered him and discovered his state and realized that there is this sort of elaborate story about this change in his life in the 70s where he willfully forgot all this stuff. And now we're talking to him and some days he remembers and some days he can't. From a from a sort of narrative point of view, that was an incredible metaphoric character to have in a story like this because Bill represents the White South in many ways, the ways in which the White South has willed themselves to forget, to misremember, to ignore this complicated and troubled past. And that willful forgetting... 
is a way of absolution. They, they see it as, I don't remember it. I wasn't there. People would tell us, as people around this country often say, I never owned a slave and I've never known anybody who was a slave. Why are we even talking about this anymore? That willful uh, resistance to a difficult history is the, the sort of subtext of the entire series. And to that point, I want to play a clip for you here. Sure. So what could we possibly hope to understand about him? What were we even doing here? Was it wrong to try and extract something from this man whose mind was so clearly diminished? Especially if what he'd said was true, that all he did was kick one of them. According to Alabama law in 1965, everyone who was involved in the attack could be charged equally with murder. But still, if he didn't swing the club that caused Reeb's fatal injury, how culpable was he really? Especially if he couldn't remember the attack. Should a person who has no memory of his role in a crime be held responsible for that crime? Anyway, it was so long ago. Why go back? Why dig this up? Why reopen these old wounds, bother this old man? That was then. What's past is past. Water under the bridge. But you know what? That's bullshit. We know it's not true. The past is not past. Bill Portwood escaped justice in 1965, and so did the men who were tried for the murder, acquitted by that all-white jury in a total sham of a trial. And the counter-narrative that sprung up in its wake, a story to blame Reeb's death on the civil rights movement itself instead of these vicious thugs who attacked the ministers because they saw them as race traitors, and all these white people who had willed that counter-narrative into existence and let it fester for decades. And now Bill had willed himself to forget his own role in the murder. And we were sitting there evaluating whether that willful forgetting could exempt someone from punishment? Is this what it means to be white? To grant Portwood the benefit of the doubt? This hobbled old man sitting in front of us isn't just an 87-year-old suffering from dementia. He's a 34-year-old in khaki pants and shirt on Washington Street who's avoided punishment for over 50 years. Can we talk about this for a second? Uh, Why did you decide to include this sort of like uh, grappling with this rationale, this very like white rationale uh, for not thinking about those things? I mean, I think that that section is really meant to stand in for conversations we had constantly uh, when we were looking into this because you would go spend time with this man and see his state and feel, you can't help but feel something, right? He is an old man sitting in front of you who is enfeebled. And feeling something for Ina, too. Yeah. I mean, it was oftentimes feeling something for his wife, too. I mean, not trying to defend the no, things. No, no, no. But, yeah. I mean but I think that we're just explaining that, you know, that, that we would feel those things and we would leave there and be like, what are we doing? Like, you know, we can't, you just heard it. Like, what are we, what are we even doing here? Like, this man is not capable of representing himself. And telling us, going back to your question about memory, he's not capable of accessing that those memories. He's not capable of accessing who he was who did these things. But then we would be like, what are we talking about? That's ridiculous. That is absurd. We are trying to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's an old white man that we're sitting in front of. And we feel some sympathy for him. And it's also... It's also a path of least resistance. It's a path of, like, not having to grapple with this stuff. It's a path of... of, of you know, what, this is complicated, and as storytellers, like, complications can be exciting, but, like, this felt at times, like, so complicated that we wouldn't be able to figure it out. And so we would, you know, resort to that, like, well, 
Maybe there's nothing that could be done. You know, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe this is ridiculous to even do this in the first place. There's, we'd entertain those doubts. We wanted that to be in the show somewhere because it felt honest to our process. Listening to that again reminded me um, there was a really a difficult and complicated passage for us to write in terms of difficult is not really the right word, but it's the hinge point of the show in many ways. It's a place where mm-hmm. I- any white people who are going along and feeling any ambiguity about what's the point of all this, we're inviting them in to sort of entertain what it might mean to not go after this guy. Mm-hmm. And then we're completely shifting that and saying this this is whiteness. This is our problem. Our problem is we we are not willing to give the benefit of the doubt to this black man who's been in, incarcerated for all these years, but we are willing to give the benefit of the doubt to this old white man or this old white man who's enfeebled, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a line in that, the, uh, is this what it means to be white? And we had one of our editors, African-American guy, um, Keith Woods, who mm-hmm. was a, incredibly insightful about all this stuff. He, and former Code Switch editor. So yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so Keith said to us, like, well, of course it's what it means to be white. And then <laughs> it was like, well, I know, of course, that's what it means to be white. But the white audience needs to hear someone say, is this what it means to be white? Mm-hmm. Like, black people don't need to hear that because black people are like, of course that's what it means to be white. So I just think it's kind of an interesting moment about, you know, an editor's, a, a black editor's opinion of that particular line and then a lot of white editors being like, well, actually, I think maybe we <laughs> probably do need to say that because it's actually not implicit in white people who are going to listen to this show. You mm-hmm. know? As you say, very high up in the show. I think it's like actually in the first, the, the very top of the first episode, you talk about the fact that uh, you're white Alabamians of some vintage uh, and that you come from families. I like that, of some, some vintage. Some vintage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like a fine wine. Of <laughs> um, I guess it sounds like whiskey probably. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you have, uh, you have people in your family who are slave owners. You have people in your family who are, you know, avowed segregationists. And I was curious about how you were metabolizing that history as you were reporting this story. Yeah, one of the interesting things I think about looking at a story from the, from this era, really, is, it, you know, any story you look at in the past, this happens. But I think something that is be, just beyond our, our birth year, and it feels, because you didn't live it, it feels so distant. Uh, and that history has been codified in textbooks. But when you do a story and you talk to people who had access to it, not only as like children, but as adults who can tell you something from that. It feels so recent. You know, it just feels, it feels like it was just yesterday in some ways. And so I think what that did for us is, is yes, we have slave owners in our past, and, but that, that's not, that doesn't feel in any way like an accessible past to us. Um, but when you start to do the lineage, you're like, oh, so my, my dad was born in 1940, and my grandfather was born in 1912. And then his father, and all of a sudden, you're right there. You are right there, you know. And so I think, um, you know, I think that that the 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 nearness of the past is what is what really this story did for us too. And the nearness of our own families, um, you know, actions in the past. There weren't that many people in Alabama in that period, you know. Mm-hmm. And so so our people were part of this narrative that we have all crafted that we're living with today. Sandy said we don't have to be defined by that. We were most definitely shaped by that. You know, I look at. My grandfather, who's one of the people I was closest to in the world, my mom's dad, who helped start a basically a segregation academy in 1954, wow. you know, um, south of Birmingham. But if you ask me who shaped me in my life, you know, he's one of the, he's right up there, probably the second most important person in my life. And mm. I, you know, loved him dearly and he lived a long time. And so, you know, I got to know him in different ways over the years. But I had to th- also square that reality. You know, we, we talk about this book um, 
uh, Killers of the Dream by this white woman, Lillian Smith, from the late 40s, 1948, 49. She relates this anecdote about working in a summer camp, and she basically was talking to a younger camper uh, about sort of this, trying to trying to really educate these children about the world that they lived in and, and the, the realities of Jim Crow and segregation, and the, again, not very distant past of slavery. And this younger camper was angry and upset hearing this because she said these are people the people who are responsible for crafting this world that I live in these are people that I that I love these are people who care for me it would be so much easier if I hated them That was Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace they're the host of NPR's serialized podcast called White Lies And that's our show. Don't forget to subscribe to the Code Switch podcast if you haven't already. Follow us on Twitter at NPR Code Switch. Follow me at Radio Mirage and Gene at G-E-E-D-E-E-215. Leah Danella edited this episode. Jess Kung produced it with help from Angela Vang. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Maria Paz Gutierrez, Karen Grisby-Bates, Kumari Devarajan, Adrian Florido, L.A. Johnson, and Steve Drummond. Our intern is also Angela Vang. That's true. Yeah. She's doing all the work. <laughs> I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. Bezio. Peace. In 1987, dozens of federal agents surrounded a trailer park in Ozark, Missouri. Their target, a white supremacist threatening violent revolution. I have eight teams of freedom fighters prepared to start a race war nationwide. The agents fired tear gas, arrested him, and found a massive arsenal. C4 plastic explosives, hand grenades, thousands of rounds of ammunition. So years later, why did the FBI stop watching him? That story on Embedded from NPR.